Adam, Kate, and Holland. I'm so happy you're on Exit Strategy. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you bringing your personal story to the podcast. I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Okay, so just as a really quick introduction, and I hope it does a little bit of justice, Adam is an actor and a national touring comic who has appeared on Conan, Comedy Central Presents, and The Late Late Show with James Corden, among so many other prominent platforms. There is a link to Adam's bio in our show notes because I can't spend the whole podcast talking about your credits, okay? Oh, let's do it. Let's spend the whole time talking about it. Significantly, Adam, you wrote a most beautiful, beautiful book in 2018 called Tragedy Plus Time. It's interesting. On the cover, it says that this is a tragicomic memoir. And you write about your childhood growing up in Denver. You talk about family bonds. And ultimately, you talk about the devastation that you and your family faced when your sister Lydia took her own life. Talk to me about Lydia's most magical quality and, of course, your very special relationship with her. <laughs> I'd love to. You know, Lydia's most magical quality was intangible. Most people who met her would remember it. And most people said they never met anybody like her. She would definitely be shy, and some people would say she's aloof, but she was always memorable to people, and I think she just took a little warming up, but she had a presence for sure. And with me, you know, I knew her so well, it was her humor that was the best thing ever. <laughs> it was the way we liked to relate. She was odd. Our humor was weird. I've thought about it a lot over the years. I liken it to jazz. We were bored with traditional humor. So our humor was just absurd and inside joke. And I pulled that out of her. She pulled that out of me. And that's the funniest stuff. She made me laugh so hard. Just weird stuff. So we would try to out-weird each other to get the other to break all the time. I love that, out-weirding one another. And you were close. You were close in age, right? She's four years younger than me. My older sister's two years older than me. So six years younger than Anna, four years younger than me. So it's interesting, humor runs through your family. It must be in your DNA someplace. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> in my family thinks they're funny. I'm the only one who's got proof. <laughs> That's important. So let's talk about the book, Tragedy Plus Time. What a fascinating title. It's really intriguing to me, and I think actually to all readers. Well, my lit agent will be very flattered because he totally <laughs> thought of that, my lit agent. <laughs> Please give him credit. Yeah, it's a great title. And, and you know, you know, there's that phrase, comedy equals tragedy plus time. And the book is so much about tragedy and dealing with it and my life in comedy and, and trying to not be so devastated that I could never find things funny again. And, and it just was the perfect title when he thought of it. It was a eureka moment. And I think it really speaks to not that any of this ever becomes funny, but that things can be funny again, and that it's honestly a disservice to that person, Lydia, who I found to be the funniest, mm -hmm. to just remove humor completely because of a tragedy. That wasn't who she was. That wasn't how we related. 
So to just be devastated and, and really morose with no humor in there anymore feels like a disservice to her. So was the book always something you were going to write? Where did that come from? No, not at all. Like, so Lydia took her own life and we were really close. In retrospect, you can see the warning signs. In real time, it wasn't clear to us at all. And I was so close with her and so was Anna, my sister, that we would just straight up say, hey, are you going to kill yourself or are you just like really down? Like, how bad is this? And she would say, no, you feel fooled. You feel all these things. Simultaneously, my stand-up comedy career was really going great. Mm -hmm. and it was kind of coming to a head. There's a thing in stand-up comedy called the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. It happens in Montreal every year. And I went there and I performed and all of Hollywood, all the agents and managers are there. And it's kind of, congrats, you made it, kid moment. And that happened. And I came home. And then two days later, Lydia killed herself. Mm. None of that mattered anymore. So I just couldn't do comedy. And I was messed up about it. I one day just wrote everything. I talked about the whole year before that and, and everything that was swirling towards this tragic ending. And I just wrote it. I had a blog at the time. I, had a way, I just published it. And I remember going on a hike because it felt very cathartic. And I just put my phone in the car and I went on a hike for a few hours and I came back and it had exploded. It was all over the place. And a week later, this lit agent, Yushai, reached out to me and, and then it was, he said, you should write a book. And it kind of led to that. I wasn't going to take it on stage, but it was swelling inside of me and I, I just got it out to put pen to paper and get it out. Yeah. It's really a fascinating process and yet really understandable because you're a writer. You know, that's what you do when you write your stand-up. So this was just a way to get it out of you. Yeah. And I, you know, I was a journalist for five years for the Alt Weekly here. It was, you know, the, the village voice of Denver is called Westward. So I've always wrote as well. And stand-up is a different muscle writing. I didn't know what else to do. The thoughts wouldn't stop. And so for me, it's always helped to record those thoughts. It kind of helps them tamp them down a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, you know, this subtitle, which I referred to earlier, a tragicomic memoir. I mean, the intersection of that is just fascinating and speaks truth to you in terms of who you are for sure. So what is that intersection like for you? You know, it's one of those things that I let other people analyze because <laughs> it sounds it's a little a good idea. <laughs> grandiose. It's like, well, where I find tragedy and comedy. The title, I feel like I'm pulling the curtain back. I didn't think of the title of the book. Uh, Simon and Schuster people marketed it as <laughs> tragic comic memoir. I don't know. I just wrote the thing. When I think about that, I, I, I think about how that phrase, you laugh so hard, you cry. I think about how those emotions are way closer than people realize. And they both provide an enormous release. When you cry, you need to cry. You can't control it. And ditto a laugh. When you laugh, you're, you're in spite of yourself, you find something really funny. So I think there are these really cathartic emotions that some scientists could probably tell you are very related in the brain because they just feel that way to me. I think you're right. I think those two emotions are, they're side by side. I think that's the only reason I was able to sort of get back into comedy because I was so devastated, truly, that I just stopped. 
Mm-hmm. It's a weird thing to have crescendoed at that point, finally starting to grasp everything you want. And then your definition of what success is and what you want is just obliterated. And so now what do you do? And it took me a year to get back to an, any type of headspace to be carving new territory in comedy or writing new jokes or being productive in the field. You know, it just couldn't do it. You were on path and you were hoping and you were working towards something. You achieved it in that moment. And then the reality of real life set in, in terms of what you were facing and the air went out of the balloon. For sure. But but it's also important to talk about the honesty of like, you had this past life and you had these aspirations, they don't go away. Right. They're just muddled. And and it took me time to even not feel guilt about still wanting those things. Your whole world is so upside down. You have a thought of just like, oh yeah, remember how you kicked butt in Montreal three months ago? Whatever happened with that? And then you feel guilty for being like, hey, you got to stay in this grief you're not, or you're not respecting it enough to even be thinking about such callous things. And and all of that's really jumbled in your head and you have to kind of eventually allow yourself to not move on, but do things and step away from the grief even momentarily because what helps to realize is that person does not want that for you. Exactly. And this is a path, right? Grief is a road that you're on and you have to figure out how to navigate that path. And it's a process. And I also think it's a path or a road that doesn't end. There's no destination here. It's just the road. So I think a lot of people who read my book or want to talk to me about this often have experienced huge grief and want to know like, okay, well, when and how? <laughs> and yeah. you're kind of like, oh, I'm sorry. If there is no when and there is no how other than however you're doing it to put one foot in front of the other. It's a kind of a disappointing message, but it's just like, yeah, there's no point where you're like, I'm fixed. Life is just worse now. It's always going to be worse. And to think otherwise is very naive. How has this journey informed your creative work? Has it changed how you approach your work and what you think about and how you create? Absolutely. Because I remember when I started doing comedy again after Lydia's death, I would feel bad for not talking about it on stage. I would feel false. Smarter people than me have described stand-up comedy as a search to sound like yourself on stage. And I think that's really accurate. The best comics, people think they're just riffing because it sounds like they're just talking. There's no real difference between them offstage and on stage. They've morphed with their onstage persona through years of, of getting there, of that level of comfort. Mm-hmm. And so to, to be this tormented by this and go on stage and not talk about it felt really dishonest. But I also didn't have the skill set to delve into this territory, wasn't doing anything remotely this soul revealing on stage. It was more jokey. So I didn't really address it head on for years. But I remember friends who you talk about such navel gazing stuff with would be like, buddy, your comedy's gotten way darker. It's way more just there's pathos. It's clear it's affected you. Like it's Mm -hmm. whether you're talking about it or not, it's coming through. And, you know, now I've started doing this one man show, which is all about this. And honestly, I think I respect Lydia so much and the art form so much. I didn't want to swing and miss because I wasn't skilled enough yet to pull this off. And, you know, only in the last couple of years have I thought, all right, I'm going to try it. And it was only because I wrote this book 
which I felt and I feel nails who Lydia is, nails the experience. And, and because I have like a document, it lives up to what I, how I view Lydia. So now I'm free to talk about it elsewhere and hit or miss. That's beautiful because as you said, it's given you the freedom now to go do what you were probably meant to do, right? Which is to do stand-up. Or, or if I want to do a joke about it, it's yeah. not like an in-depth hour about it. I can do that now. In my mind, I've paid homage appropriately. In 2018, there was an interview with the New York Times, and you said, there is no guide to grief. And you said, it's still okay to laugh. Talk about that, because I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges people face especially initially after experiencing the loss, let alone a traumatic loss? Yeah. How do you get from point A to point B where you can laugh again? It's so weird when you survive someone or you see this awful thing happen to someone you love so much, you're so wrecked that you can't imagine not being in that place. Hmm. Just because of time, just because the planet ticks on, whether you're participating or not, you start to just not always be as prostrate with grief. And then you start to feel guilty. It's just like, no, you should be so devastated by this that you never recover. When you're just like, hey, I'm hungry. I could use a sandwich. You're just like, stop thinking about that. That's not what's important. You should be devastated. That's so cruel, but that's how I was feeling. And I know that's how members of my family were feeling as well. It's like, what, am I going to just go to work and everything's normal? Like, just purely through time and therapy and all sorts of other things, do you allow yourself the grace to not feel so depressed and sad all the time? And a lot of things helped me, but that's what I talk about laughing again. It's just like, and what I was talking about Lydia earlier, if you love this person so much, you got to know that they loved you as much. They would hate this version of you. They would hate this life for you. They would feel even more sad than the sadness that led them to kill themselves if they knew that they just took you out as well emotionally. Sure. And you use the word permission, giving yourself permission to take that next step. Yeah. You're so right. And it's great that you were able to get to that point. And I think that's the biggest challenge for so many people. Yeah. And, you know, we're given the Cliff's Notes version and it took me a long time to get to that point. And you got mad at Lydia and you're like, I don't care what you would want from me because you betrayed us and blah, 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 like all this stuff but you just got to move past it. I watched this movie. It was called Beasts of No Nation, which it was like a really gut-wrenching. It's Idris Elba plays like an African warlord. And it is some of the worst stuff imaginable on the planet. It's African children of war and it's, it's rape and it's awful. And I remember watching this movie and just being like, oh, I don't have it so bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was the first time I was just like, okay, comparatively, I won the lottery. I'm all right. Like, I can do this. Yeah. yeah. You need to sort of pull yourself out of just only you have suffered, only you are suffering. Like, I don't know. I just remember that movie, Gobsmacked Me. And I was like, buddy, why don't you go to a therapist? And let's go figure this out. So speaking of therapists, you talk about the fact they were not a good fit for you. You use the word pity to describe how people were treating you. People pitied you. And that was really uncomfortable for you, I'm sure. That was a challenge also, because once you decided, okay, I need therapy, 
it wasn't doing the trick. I have a joke in my show about like all four remaining family members, my mom and dad and sister, and all of, all of us are, you know, we respect mental health and therapy. We're no, we're no strangers to it. You, we had it growing up. Like you don't need to force us into therapy, but none of us were in therapy at the time. You don't know who these people are. It's, I kind of would just meet a therapist and it didn't mesh. And so I'd kind of just reject them and move on to the next one. And I tell people constantly, if therapy doesn't work for you, maybe it was the therapist, just, just like anybody, you got to find a good working relationship. These people are intimately in your brain and you kind of have to be friends with them. Even if you're paying them, you have to like them and really mm -hmm. feel comfortable with them. So if the first one doesn't work, try again, you know, and, and I was having that experience, but I also was a little resistant because it was so hard. So I was bouncing from one to the other and finding reasons for rejecting them that may have not even been rational, but just sort of avoiding, I think. So talk about the process, how you got to EMDR therapy, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. It's something that I don't think a lot of people know about, don't know that that might be an option. Yeah. So how did you get there and find it and what it did for you? I, I really want to hear about that. So yeah, I had kind of struck out with several therapists and I just stopped going. Spoiler alert, I, I found my little sister as well. So it compounded all this tragedy with really intense, I was having flashbacks and nightmares and it was just awful stuff. I went to just get a yearly checkup with my doctor, who's great. And I was telling him everything that's going on and, and he knew about it. And he basically, he was like, you've got PTSD. You have all the symptoms of PTSD. Nobody had told me that. Nobody had thought of that. It was just like abundantly clear. And then he knew about EMDR because he's a smart guy. But it's not as obscure as you think. It's been around for 30, 40 years. But essentially, it is therapy that's very aggressive targeting trauma. My EMDR therapist described it as these obtrusive thoughts stemming from the trauma. Therapists love metaphors for the brain. Your brain's a filing cabinet. And these obtrusive, obtrusive thoughts are files that have become errant. They're loose. So the goal of this therapy is to file this memory away so it doesn't pop up at inappropriate times. It's just there filed away. And in order to do that with this therapy, you talk about this specific moment again and again and again and again and again. And while you do that talking, you hold these little electronic pulsers in your hand and they vibrate back and forth and back and forth. And you close your eyes and your eyes instinctively mirror that. So, so basically you trick your brain into experiencing REM, a state of deep sleep. It's a little hypnosis-y, but that's when we process things. While you're awake, you trick your brain into thinking you're asleep, and then you just dive into the trauma. Amazing. And the process takes how long? It can take however long you need it to take. And and this is where I talk about practitioner because I've been a champion of EMDR and I've had people tell me, I tried it. It was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, if you got a bad shrink leading you to your most sensitive place. <laughs> I fortunately, first woman I found was this leading expert in her field and she's so good and she helped me so much. But yeah, it can be very overwhelming. So you kind of come up with a happy place in your brain. And, and when it gets to be too much, you retreat to that happy place and so you'll talk about certain details and then it can get intense and she'll just kind of guide you. She's like, all right, let's go to that happy place and tell me about that. And it's that hands-on and, and that intense and that kind of gloves, baby gloves as you, as you deal with it. But 
I don't even remember how many sessions it was. I would say 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. And I told my therapist, I was like, I don't think I need to do this anymore or want to do this anymore. And she goes, then you don't, then you absolutely. Wow. And that was it. And truly, and you've said this, it saved your life. I, I was definitely suicidal, but I wouldn't do it because I had, I knew what it did to my family. And I was like, if you do it, like, I don't know if mom survives it, like, you know, all that stuff. So that's a pretty low place to like, want to kill yourself, but not be able to, because your sister did, and you can't even fathom what it would do to the others. So what do you do in that situation? Just walk through life like a numb nihilist. That doesn't sound like it's going to end well. In that regard, it definitely saved my life. And you were able to, if you will, start anew again in terms of working and everything that's going on for you. So talk about next steps. What's your next big thing? What are your dreams? What are you looking to do next? I'm working on a book proposal right now that's interesting, I think. Talking about allowing myself to pursue other projects, over the pandemic, I've written a movie script that's this, that's my story. It's moving along well, so I'm very optimistic that it'll happen, but I also have made a TV show and and know in Hollywood things can come and go very quickly. Cautious optimism, but I've written a script about this and I think it's pretty good and, and we'll see. And what a beautiful tribute that would be to Lydia and, of course, to your relationship and to the bright future ahead of you. And so I hope that happens for you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I'm so happy that you took some time and shared such a personal and really important story. Needless to say, there's so much out in the world today when it comes to those who take their life by suicide. And to those who are left behind, and we think we see the signs and we hope we see the signs. And it's just wonderful to know that there are people out there like yourself who talk about this to raise awareness and to make sure that we all are keeping our eyes open. So I thank you. Well, yeah, thank you for having me on. It's wonderful that you're doing this podcast and this type of work. If anyone can learn anything from my book and from my experience is that these people are so much more than these sad final moments, months, years. These are really lovely, funny people who had mental illness, but they're, they're so much more than their depression and mental illness. Adam, Kate, and Holland, keep in touch with us so we know where to find you. And remember us when you're real, real, real famous. Remember us, okay? You got it. Thank you so much. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.